good to have you all with us tonight. Wanted to give a quick shout out to uh, a couple of our watch parties. Um, we've got a bunch of big ones all over, you know, down in Medford's one of our bigger ones with the Pam and Barrick Fronick and those guys are down there. Love to see you guys, uh, old friends from Medford. There's several of them down in Medford. Um, but there's a new one. We've got over 80 as of this week, 80 watch parties uh, all over the country. Um, <laughs> I, I thought this was great. There's a coffee shop um, that opened up. Uh, tonight, tonight is their first watch party. It's a coffee shop in Scottsville, Kentucky. And it's their first watch party. Um, they opened up a coffee shop there in Scottsville and are hosting their watch party there. This is a few little shots of their newly opened uh, coffee shop. See, this is, it looks like a cute little street there in Scottsville. Scottsville. Um, but if you zoom in, see the, on the window there, it says watch party. Uh, that's Athey Creek right on their logo there. I thought that was, is that great? So uh, we welcome all the Kentuckians out there. Uh, they're joining us tonight for our study. Well, uh, we are in Matthew's gospel. So why don't you turn with me to Matthew chapter eight. We began Matthew chapter eight this last weekend as we uh, were doing the weekend services. And we saw the first of 10 miracles uh, in chapters eight and nine. These are 10 miracles of Jesus that he does and that are described for us here in Matthew chapter eight and nine. Um, they're the first ones recorded in the New Testament, but it's not necessarily chronological. We know probably, most likely, the very first miracle Jesus did was found actually in the Gospel of John when he went to the wedding feast there at Cana and turned water into wine. Uh, that was the very first miracle after he was baptized. Um, but Matthew gives us an account of, of 10 miracles um, that really remind us that this theme that Jesus is the answer. Uh, no matter what is ailing you, no matter what is hurting you, no matter how bad things are for you, Jesus is the answer. And, and I think that's what we see in these beautiful miracles of Matthew chapter eight and chapter nine. Um, so um, one of the things we saw here is, um, you know, the first miracle was that of, uh, of Jesus, um, you know, cleansing the leper. We saw that. Um, in chapter eight, uh, verses one through uh, four, we saw on this weekend. If you missed that this weekend, you can catch up with us. Uh, Matthew chapter eight, verses one through four, the cleansing of the leper, miracle number one. And that brings us to miracle number two um, that we're gonna see. By the way, this miracle of um, cleansing of the leper, man, what an important thing. We saw how Jesus does heal. Uh, we talked a little bit about healing, how he can do it immediately, sometimes more of a process of time progressively, or sometimes ultimate healing when you die and go to heaven and to be with the Lord. But if you're a believer in Jesus and a follower of Jesus, you will be healed one way or another. Uh, and uh, that's, a, that's the good news. We saw that leprosy is a type of sin. So if you're a sinner and you've been tagged with sin, um, Jesus is the answer, just like all these uh, miracles we're gonna see. Uh, it starts small, but ends big. Sin does, leprosy does. It spreads quickly, sin and leprosy. It brings isolation, just like sin, just like leprosy. It leaves everything contaminated. It deadens the senses and it's a death sentence, um, all of that. And, and we saw how leprosy is, is not really de de determined as um, healing, but it's cleansing. If you are a leper and you're healed, uh, you technically, biblically wanna call that cleansing because it's a type of sin. 
picture of sin. Uh, and so all that happened there. And uh, last Sunday we saw verses one through four. And that's where we pick it up in, in verse five and we see he, uh, healing of a centurion's servant. That's miracle number two. Let's take a look in verse five. It says, and when Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion beseeching him and saying, Lord, my servant lieth at home sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. And Jesus said unto him, I will come and heal him. Now pause there for a second. Interesting, um, the original uh, text here in verse seven um, says literally, I will come to your house and heal him. That's, if you go to the Greek text, it says, I'll come to your house and I'll heal him. Now, why is that important that Jesus was, I'm gonna come to your house? First of all, Jesus was a teaching rabbi. He would go around and teach in the synagogues. Um, and technically, Jesus would be breaking the, the law, technically. Now, did Jesus ever break the, the, the true law? No, he never broke the law of Moses, but he did break a bunch of goofy laws that the Jews added to the law of Moses. Remember, that's something you have to be careful with when you're reading the New Testament account. Because, you know, um, there's, there's all these people that accuse Jesus, you're breaking the law. Um, but he really wasn't. He was, he was never breaking the law of Moses, the Levitical or uh, the, the laws of the Pentateuch. Never did Jesus break those. But he did break their, their traditions of men that they added to the laws. And that's something that we have to be careful about in modern times. How was he breaking the law by saying, I'll go to your house? To go into the house of a Gentile was forbidden by uh, those in that time period. If you were a rabbi teaching in the synagogues, you would never find yourself in the house of a Gentile. That was breaking the traditions that they had scolded people out for centuries, uh, breaking the law uh, of going into this. So when Jesus said that, I'm gonna come and go into your house, they could have said, sinner, even though they were totally wrong. Have you ever wondered, what are the things we judge people about that really um, may not even be sinful? Uh, that we sort of deem sinful. Uh, the religious leaders added to the law. That's something we have to be careful about. Now, I'm not sure that's our biggest problem today. I think our biggest problem is not calling real sin, sin. Like we, we might need to swing the other way a little bit. Like, you know, the Pharisees were calling everything sin. We're calling nothing sin today. Uh, and you can do whatever you want. If it feels good, do it kind of thing. And that's why we have to kind of get back to what does the Bible actually say is sinful and wrong? And, and that's something we do as we go through the Bible. We say, well, the Bible says this is wrong and people get mad. Some of the things that people get most angry at me about are things the Bible just very clearly says, yeah, that's sin. And so I say, yeah, that's sin. And everyone's like, oh, you're just a, and then then fill in the blank of all the names people wanna call you if you, if you believe what the Bible says. Um, so all that to say, uh, this, the religious leaders were adding to the law and they would put like new twists on scripture. And what do you get when you put a new twist on scripture? Twisted scripture, uh, yes. And the old saying, if it's true, it's not new. If it's new, it's not true. Uh, that's, that's really true, uh, even to this very day. But they added a bunch of stuff. But what we see here is this centurion, Roman soldier, who is concerned about his servant. Um, by the way, if you have someone you love and care about who's hurting, what do you do? You know, what should you and I do? Uh, and, and one of the things that I think I need to remind us of, and this is a thing that I have to remind myself and my pastoral team, um, one thing you need to remember is you are not Jesus. 
You say, Brett, I know that. No, sometimes you think you're Jesus, so do I. How so? Well, when your friends are hurting, you wanna be the one to heal them and help them and get them through the challenges they're facing because you love them and you care about them. But I love what this centurion does. This guy seems to be very practical. I like practical people. And he says, man, my, the, my servant who I love and care about deeply is really sick. And so what am I gonna do? And he does the right thing. He, he says, I need Jesus. He doesn't say, I am Jesus. I am the one who's gonna heal this person or I'm gonna fix their problem. He looks to the one who can, and that's something. So you're not Jesus, so what do we do? We bring them to Jesus or even bring Jesus to them. But it's, the answer is always Jesus. Um, and, and by the way, I wonder, do you think that the centurion was familiar with the Jewish laws of Jesus going into his house being sort of fupa or sort of a, a cultural you know, thing you don't do? Um, I, think, I think that this guy does recognize that and, and, and you maybe can imply that from what he says. Um, and I love this centurion because he, um, he actually has great faith and we're gonna, we're gonna see that. But check this out, uh, as you go on to verse eight, it says, the centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that thou shouldest come under my roof, but speak the word only and my servant shall be healed. For I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this man, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he doeth it. You see, this, this centurion, a man of authority, notice he said something here really important. He says he's a man under authority, don't miss that. But he's also a man having authority. Uh, there's some good stuff here, by the way, about um, what he's saying, but also who this man is. First of all, what he's saying, the centurion recognizes Jesus's total authority over all things, even the authority over sickness to sort of cast it out. Without even having gone to his house, this guy recognizes that, man, I, I, I like how this guy must have logically thought if he can heal a leper with a, you know, that be cleaned, um, and he's suddenly clean. And this guy recognizes authority that's way past anything we've got. And, and this, this is why this man goes down as a great man of faith because he, he deduces, well, if you can just say be clean unto a leper, then you can also from a distance say, be healed to one sick of the palsy. Um, and, and he recognizes just at, at his word. See, this is something the centurion was used to. He'd just say, go this, go do, you know, about face, forward march. And the soldiers would have to obey him. Now in the Roman soldier culture, if you disobeyed orders, man, it wasn't that you'd get, you know, a toothbrush and, you know, scrubbing the urinals. It could mean death to you. Um, there's stories of Romans, especially in the, right around the first century uh, when the Roman Empire was right about this time, horrible stories of soldiers who were not doing their duties properly and they'd strip them naked and make all their clothes and armor fall to the ground and then pour kerosene all over it and light it all on fire, that man standing in the midst of his clothes, nakedly burning there. That's how they'd punish him. Um, so like the Romans didn't take you know, disobedience lightly. So this centurion said, man, I'd tell people to do this and they do it. And you have even greater authority. He already defers saying, I'm not even worried that I have you come into my house. So he defers to Jesus's authority, but specifically, insightfully, the word, the spoken word is what he recognizes as Jesus having the authority. The power of the word of Jesus is equivalent to the power 
of the word of God. I hope you see that. The centurion, I think, got it. And so must we. Remember, these are classic passages about this. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Same chapter, a few verses down, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus, the word incarnate. Um, Even the same word that spoke the world into existence at creation, let there be light. There's the sun. Like, can you imagine just being able to speak that kind of power? Just let there be light and suddenly this massive ball of gas and matter burning for you know, millennia. Um, that, that's the kind of power God has. And uh, Jesus is God. So the power of the word of God, Jesus's word is the final word. And somehow this Gentile centurion got that. And what's even more shocking is he got it before the Jews really got this. Um, this guy was an early adopter an early learner of who Jesus really was, which you gotta admire this guy. Um, Now, a few thoughts on authority, because this is an important thing. Um, You know, uh, since the centurion brings this up, I'm a man, you know, having authority, but also under authority. Um, Some of the greatest people on the planet that ever lived were people who knew how to be under authority before they actually were given authority. Um, by the way, who, who is a, what is a centurion uh, in Bible days? Well, you might think, well, it's a guy who's in charge of 100 people. That's what the name would imply. But actually, uh, the centurion of the first century, uh, as, it, as it turns out, he was usually around uh, over about 80 men. Um, by the way, throughout the size of a century, uh, you know, changed over time, even though it's called a century. You say, well, that's 100 but from his first century BC all the way through most of the imperial era, the standard size of a centuria, which is the group of men, uh, soldiers, was 80. Um, I think it started out not to exceed 100 men, and it was usually around 80 soldiers. So this guy that's standing there before Jesus has 80 men under his command. Um, and, uh, and by the way, if you're, this might come in handy as we're going through the New Testament. After you get the uh, centurion with his, co- um, then you have a cohort of centuries. Uh, cohort would be six centuries, which would be uh, 480 men. And then you have, after that, a Roman legion, uh, which would actually, the first, the first of the uh, cohorts would be uh, only, believe it or not, five um, you know, cohorts. And then the second through the 10th would be six cohorts. And there's a reason for that, which actually makes a legion of soldiers, 5,500 men uh, on the average. Um, And that would include some of the cavalry and the blacksmiths and all the, um, you know, personnel that keeps an army uh, going and what have you. But the Roman army, if you read your history, the the Roman uh, army is something that is worth studying in history because, um, you know, the, the amount of years that the Romans were in power is actually kind of shocking uh, throughout history. You know, when you think of America, you know, 250 years, we've been, a, you know, uh, a nation or so. Uh, and, um, and uh, but think about it. Uh, you know, the Romans, if, if you don't include the Byzantine era, the Romans were in charge, interestingly enough, for 666 years. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? Uh, but that's how long they were in power. So if you get past the 666 part, you're like, wow, that's a long time uh, that they were in charge. But the reason I wanna bring up this thing about the, 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 this guy, he, he was a man of authority, but he understood true authority when he saw it in Jesus. And the reason I say that is I'm, I'm concerned that we are a culture that hates authority. Um, you know, we've rebelled against authority. 
you know, um, it was the 60s, uh, the generation. Um, you know, what, what is it? Gen X, I think, is uh, from 1965. Bef- the baby boomers went from 1964 backward. Uh, you're the boomers. We have some of you here in the room t- tonight. Uh, and, and you guys were the ones who started the whole problem. <laughs> Love, beads, flowers, the sexual revolution, the 60s and all that. But uh, the Gen Xers, uh, we were born in 65. But in the 60s, um, you know, it was, it was um, question authority. Remember all that? Uh, down with authority were the big picket signs of the 60s and what have you. Um, but then the Gen Xers, we came of age and our, and our thing was to question authority, but it was also to rebel against authority. We took it a step further, not just question, but rebel. And uh, out of the 80s, you know, some of you guys, if you like your old punk rock and stuff that we saw, there was groups that, you know, rebel against authority and, and you're not the boss of me, you know, rebel. But um, after the Gen Xers, millennials came along and, and, and we, we watched them. Millennials, by the way, are from 1981. If you were born from 1981 to 1996, you're in that millennial category. Um, and the millennials have, have sort of, as I see it, learned to not rebel against authority as much as ignore authority. Just ignore it. Why rebel against it? Just ignore it, it's not there. Um, And then the Gen Zers, if you were born from 1997 to 2012, you're a Gen Zer. And the thing I'm concerned about is that generation seems to be saying, be the authority. Like I am the authority over all things. And the younger generation saying, yeah, look at the authority. You're not the boss of me, I'm in control of myself. And uh, we're gonna, you know, my truth is the authority. You know, it's that relativism thing. And where are these Gen Zers getting it? From stupid uh, college professors and academia and all the brainwashing that's been going on for a long time. Um, And it's where this relativism, remember the new religion I talked about a few weeks ago? God to me. Uh, and suddenly they're the authority who, they're making up who God is. And that's, that's what we're seeing sort of rampant today. But it, interesting, even Jesus, this is, this is shocking. Even Jesus was submitted to authority. That's an amazing thing to say when you think about it. Well, bro, what do you mean? If he's God, who's he submitted to? Well, isn't it interesting the picture of God becomes a man? He's called the son of God. God in three persons and one being, the Trinity, the mystery, and yet, isn't it interesting? John chapter six, verse 38 says, for, um, says, for I came down <clears throat> um, from heaven, not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And also John five nineteen, the son can do nothing of himself, but he that seeth the father do. That's speaking of his role. John five thirty, um, I can of mine own self do nothing as I hear I judge and my judgment is just because I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father which has sent me. So Jesus, you say, well, why did Jesus have to, you know, sort of report to the Father if they're one and the same? Remember, there's some nuances here that are way past our brain power. For example, um, if God could say through Jesus, he was tempted in all points like as we have been tempted, does that mean that he has to be tempted to resist authority? Well, yeah, because we're all tempted to resist authority. And a lot of times that's sinful. And so for Jesus to know all of our hurts and our suffering and our pain, he had to become a man and live among us. So how did Jesus know what it felt like to be under authority? Well, he did. He submitted himself to the Father, which is in heaven. Yeah, but they're one and the same. Shocking, isn't it? It's dizzying. 
but all that to say, um, that's part of the deal is even Jesus demonstrated a total submission to the Father. I always do the will of my Father, Jesus would say. And that raises an interesting question because I told you about all the generations and no matter what generation you're from, what is stuck in your brain? Are you a 60s sort of rebel against authority or have you graduated as a baby boomer all the way to the Gen Z mentality that I'm the authority? I'm the boss of what I think and who, you know, like I've seen a lot of us have done that over the years. We've all kind of said, yeah, whatever. We don't like any authority. I'm the only authority on myself. And that's not really a biblical notion. We're, we're supposed to submit ourselves one to another, the Bible says in Ephesians chapter five. Um, the idea of submission is a Christian notion. You submit to those who are in authority over you. Um, it's interesting how this comes out in the church. Pastor Brad, I need to meet with you. And um, we got problems in our marriage or our home or whatever. And so I'll meet. And then very clear what the Bible says a person's supposed to do. Um, and I'll share, you know, according to what, here's what the scriptures say. Cause you know, what I have to say is nothing. Uh, what a waste of time to listen to my opinion. But if I give you scripture and say, here's what the Bible actually says, well, there's an authority that you should follow. But I'm always shocked people, they take that and say, oh, well, Pastor Brett, that's nice advice. <laughs> Especially if they don't like what I told them, which is most of the time. You know, well, I don't know if I like what you said. And I was reading a book that said something a little different than what you said, Pastor Brett. Oh, so you're choosing between Pastor Brett and the, the, count, the book that you just read. Um, and I'd say, well, let's remember the book that I was talking about was the Bible. The book that you just read was some dude that wrote a book. Let's remember. Oh, but Brett, it wasn't a book. No, I had $150 an hour, man. I, I, I had counseling. Me and my wife went through counseling, $150 an hour. Therapist said something different than what you said. And they're a professional licensed therapist. Sometimes I wanna charge $150 for my time just to give it value. <laughs> because it's free, I'm like, eh, I think we're not gonna listen to Pastor Brett. Uh, didn't cost me anything, that's $150, that must be true. Um, it's funny how people think about, and again, I'm, I'm not saying that you should listen to me, I'm just saying we all should be submitted to the word of God. Forget the therapist, forget the book. If it's controverting the word, you see that there's good therapists and there's good books out there, but only as good as they are as they relate to what the Bible actually says. That's what you have to remember. So the question you might ask yourself, who do you submit to? Are there people that you say, you know what? I'm gonna submit to their authority. Uh, maybe it's your parents. Maybe it's, uh, you have a team of people around you that you submit to. Um, you know, you men, it, uh, men are often really hard to find people that'll, you know, that you'll be willing to submit to. Uh, we like to be our own boss, self-made man kind of thing. But who do you submit to? Um, if you want authority, here's a freebie for you guys. Listen, if you want authority, you need to learn how to submit to authority. Um, <laughs> it's, I have to admit, I, I do, you know, uh, one of the greatest secular books, I think, out there probably uh, in the last few decades, in my opinion, is Extreme Authority or Extreme Ownership, you know, Jocko Willink and the, you know, it's funny to talk about, he's talking to business people and, you know, executives and stuff about extreme ownership and leadership and stuff, but it just seems so ridiculous. They're talking about life and death situations and Ramadi and Navy SEAL stuff. And then they go back, now in the office, you're like, <laughs> oh man, that what a stupid thing. Like, like but, but one of the things that they talk about is, you know, the chain of command and, and being submitted to those that are in authority over you and how it just breaks down if that's not in place. And they also talk about how you're not gonna really be a great leader until you learn how to, to submit to authority. 
And um, there's a balance there that's really important. And it's funny, even our military, our best military, the best in the world military, um, uh, you know, uh, operators know this principle. It's a principle of true, real, everyday life. And yet how many men just say, yeah, I don't really need to submit to anybody. And they wonder why they're floundering. They wonder why people don't submit to them and why they're not leading well. Um, there's a biblical notion um, that's really important here. Um, so back to miracle number two here, we've got this, you know, the healing of the centurion servant. So let, let's move on. So we already see him in verse nine say, man, you can just come and say it and, and uh, you don't even need to come to my house. So verse 10 says, when Jesus heard it, he marveled and said, and said to them that followed, verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith. No, not in Israel. What do you think the Jews thought of this? I mean, think about this for a second. What about the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes? Because they were walking around with this entourage too. They were watching Jesus critically and Jesus just kind of almost like uh, in passing says, oh man, wow. I just have not seen so great a faith. No, not even in all of Israel. And what would they think? He was talking to a Gentile. You know, the Jews were probably hearing this thinking, this is a low life, this Gentile centurion. He's part of the problem. Don't you see it, Jesus? What about the zealots that were among the group? You know, those were saying, we gotta rebel and Jesus is gonna be the king that's gonna lead us against the Roman empire. And here's Jesus saying that one of the centurions of the Roman army has greater faith than anybody in all of Israel. This would have shaken their worldview to the core for Jesus to make this little passing statement. Verily I say to you, I've not found so great a faith. Nope, not in all of Israel. Don't forget the, um, the, the Jews of this time period, the religious Jews, they prayed, oh Lord, thank you that I'm not a woman or a Gentile or a dog. That's what they prayed. There's like historical record of them praying that very prayer. Um, they believed Gentiles were good for one purpose, to fuel the fires of hell. And meanwhile, now Jesus, he's saying, this Gentile, this Roman centurion has greater faith than anyone he's seen in all of Israel. By the way, uh, Jesus, would you call this, he's sort of marveling in sort of a, a sort of a under the breath statement. He's like, wow, he's marveling. Did you know there's only two occasions where the Lord Jesus marveled like this? One was at the unbelief of Israel and the other was the faith of the Gentile centurion right here. Uh, isn't it something when God marvels at something? <laughs> that's, that's an interesting thing, because God's marveling here. He's like, wow, <laughs> that's really something. I've not seen such faith like this, not in all of Israel. And, and the implication is of all the people that should have faith, the Israelis, well, the Jews, they have a history with God. What about the parting of the Red Sea? What about the manna from heaven? What about you know, the miracles of, of the, the story of Daniel and, and, and the prophets? And, and they, you know, they, they've got thousands of years of interaction with God. <clears throat> but the Jews by this time, he's like, Jesus said, man, not seen much faith here, but look at this, this Gentile. Now, then Jesus says something else that would have even shocked him even more. And you and I miss it because we know the way the story goes out. But if you keep reading, look at verse 11. After saying, I've not seen so great, not a great faith, not in all of Israel, verse 11. And I say unto you that many shall come from the east and from the west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. 
but the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness and there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Whew. Now this, if you're a Jew, this should be very scary for you, but also there's a bunch of Gentiles that took this the wrong way and have made doctrine that's very dangerous out of this, these two verses. So we need to be careful with these red letters. Um, you know, there's a lot of false thinking that has come out of this. Now, now you remember, um, one of the things that the Jews knew nothing of until after Jesus is that God really had a plan to save the whole world from its sins. The Jews should have known this, by the way. If you read your old, the Old Testament, the Jews, there was provision for the outsider, the stranger that was even able to come into Jerusalem and practice Judaism. There was provision for, for even the Old Testament Gentiles to sort of be among the Jews. Now the Jews made it hard for them and eventually made things like, like even in the time of Jesus, if you were a Gentile and you went to the Temple Mount, you could only go out into the court of the Gentiles, but you couldn't go further into the, the uh, courtyard. There was a fence there in Jesus's time and the fence, well, Herod the Great, who built that, that remodeled Zerubbabel temple, if you remember, he put placards all around this fence and it said, if you are a Gentile and you cross this line, you have only yourself to blame for your ensuing death. <laughs> Not a lot of, how would you like it if you came to church and saw that sign outside of your church building? It's like, yeah, you can stay outside. If you come in these doors, you'll be dead. Uh, that's what it was like going to the temple for a Gentile during the time of Christ. Meanwhile, um, uh, God had a plan through the Old Testament all the way to when Jesus would come that he would save the whole world of its sins, not just the Jewish people. Um, and so that's where Paul the apostle jumps on that same bandwagon in Galatians 3.28 when he says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither bond nor free. There's neither male nor female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Jesus starts something completely fresh. I'm not gonna say he does away with the old, but he joins the old with the new. That is anyone who wants to be saved can be. Jew, Gentile, uh, male or female. Uh, false barriers were all around the time of Jesus where they were putting barriers between people groups. Um, women had their category and you better stay over there if you're a woman and Gentiles, you better stay out of here. And they, they put all these barriers up that were basically saying, you know, we're better than you. And it was basically the Jewish male saying we're better than pretty much everyone else. Um, but one of the things we learned on Sunday, remember, we're all lepers. It's funny how when you realize we're all lepers, it kind of puts us all in the same category. Doomed, plagued, diseased sinners. Um, but the idea of, of the leper, remember that was, they thought that you did something sinful and wrong. Um, and, and so Jesus, now Jesus is ministering to these, these people and he, and he ministers to this, this uh, Gentile, Centurion, which the Jews would have had no part of. Jesus already broke a rule in, in number one, he touched a leper. Uh, that was a, one of the traditions of man. Whatever you do, don't touch a leper. And Jesus broke that, touched him and healed him. Now he's talking about going over to a centurion's house to, to save his servant. Uh, law number two. But one thing that Jesus demonstrates here is love over the law. And what's so cool about this is um, that this, this is Jesus sort of telling us the plan for the Gentiles. When, let's break it down, verse 11. He says, I say to you that many shall come from the east and the west. That's us. Gentiles from all over the earth would join in with who? 
Well, we'll sit down with, and this is an idiom that everybody in those times would have known, sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Um, is that sitting down with three guys? Well, no, we're talking really about, uh, he's sitting down with Jewish people because uh, the, the, the God of the Jews is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So that's an idiom of saying, basically Gentiles and Jews will sit down together uh, before the Lord. But the somber, scary warning is in verse 12. But the children of the kingdom, who's that? Anybody wanna take a stab? The Jews, correct, um, shall be cast into the outer darkness and there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Is that a good place to go? Probably we're talking about hell here. What? Jews going to hell? This would have been a shocker to them. The, 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 what Jesus is saying, Jews and Gentiles are gonna sit down before God together. And there's gonna be, and this is what Jesus is saying, there's gonna be some Jews who reject Jesus who are gonna go to hell. That's just in cold, hard terms. That's what Jesus is saying. Now here's where it's been wrongly taught. The replacement theology people, and I, I've talked about this a lot, so I don't wanna spend too much time on this, but remember, they're the groups of people. And, and by the way, most Christianity in the world today is replacement theology. George Bush was a replacement theologian, theologian uh, his, at least his church, his pastor. I don't think he really knew what he was. Um, but remember when, when Bush was pushing, we need a two-state solution back when he was president. And, and it's like he didn't really care about the Jewish nation. And you're like, how could a Christian uh, you know, president of the United States say, say words like that? Um, and the answer is because a lot of the Christians around America believe God's done with the Jews. So when you hear the Presbyterian USA church say, yeah, uh, there needs to be a Palestinian state and the Jews are oppressors and all this stuff. They've, they've chalked the Jews off and they're no longer God's chosen people. And, and who is the, the chosen people of God? The church, that's what they believe. The whole Catholic church believes that the Catholic church is the children of God and the Jews have forsaken their role as God's chosen people. Now, even a nominal Bible student, if you read the Bible, it's not even hard to see it. It's amazing that people have this idea because it's a horrible teaching because God made everlasting covenants. Some of the covenants God made with the Jews are, are um, conditional covenants, where if you do this, then this is gonna happen. For example, if you keep worshiping Baal and idols, I'm gonna scatter you all over the world and I, you're gonna be scattered and then you'll be regathered in the last days to Israel. That was a promise that was conditional and God kept that promise. But one thing you'll never see is I will completely forsake you forever and ever. That never happened. And there are covenants that, that God made with Israel that were not based on their behavior. It was based on his ability to keep a promise. He made an everlasting covenant with Abraham and it was not based on the Jews being good. So when these people say, well, God bailed on the Jews and now the church has replaced that, do you realize that puts God as a liar? Secondly, if God bailed on the Jews, why wouldn't he bail on you? He probably should. I mean, the Jews have done better than we have by and large and, and the Gentile church thinks we're better than the Jewish people, uh, no. So if you believe in replacement theology, you better be hoping God doesn't forsake you. If he forsook the Jews, why wouldn't he forsake you? But that's just so wrong. The teaching of the Bible is clear. God has a plan and a purpose for the Jews. And I hope you, you see this. So when it says many shall come, you know, from the east uh, and to the west. Um, in fact, um, um, you know, verse 12, um, pardon me, verse, verse 11 says, when they come from the east to the west, 
they'll sit down with uh, Abraham and Isaac. The idea is many Gentiles will come from all over the world and join the Jews in heaven. Um, that's an important thing. By the way, Romans chapter 11, uh, this is what Paul, this is why the replacement theology thing is so ridiculous. Uh, Paul reminds Gentiles, the Romans, in Romans eleven twenty five, he says, for I would not brethren that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits. That's exactly what the church has done, that it believe in replacement theology. They believe we Gentiles are better than the Jews who crucified Jesus. And he goes on and says, that blindness in part has happened to, the, to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in and so all Israel shall be saved. This, this is a, a single uh, section of scripture. In fact, you can read all of Romans 9, 10, and 11. Those three chapters spell it out clearly. God still has a plan for the Jews. This is what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, there's some Jews that are gonna be cast out. And who are they? Well, it's, people have asked me this question, Brett, are Jews gonna go to heaven even if they don't believe in Jesus? The answer is clearly no. When Jesus died on the cross, from that point forward, we began a new age in time. It's called, we can call it what you want, the age of the Gentiles, the church age. Um, even this verse that we just showed you shows that there's a, there's a time of the Gentiles that, and when, when that's over, then all of Israel shall be saved. When's Israel gonna be saved? I believe it's very clear. If you read your Bible, the rapture of the church, which will be mostly Gentiles. Some Jews who believe Jesus is the Messiah. Um, they will be raptured with the church because Ephesians 2 says um, there's three groups. There's Jews, there's Gentiles, and then there's the church. And the church is made up of Jews and Gentiles who believe in Jesus. He calls it one new man. There's a new man. There used to be an old man, uh, but now there's a new man. It's called the church. But when the church is raptured, that's when the Jews will all have their eyes open, being from blindness all the way to uh, well, they'll, where they'll see that Jesus is the Messiah. So once Jesus died on the cross, uh, everyone on the earth was responsible to accept Jesus, to believe in Jesus. Don't forget, Acts 4.12 says, neither is there salvation in any other, for there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Um, now, the Old Testament, what about the Old Testament model? What was required in the Old Testament for a Jew to be saved? Was it to believe in Jesus? No, because Jesus hadn't come yet. But uh, this, this is probably um, reminds us, Romans told us about the Old Testament, Romans 4, 3, and also Genesis chapter 12 tells us the same thing. For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God and it, count, it was counted unto him for righteousness. If you were an Old Testament Jew, the way you'd get to heaven is to just simply believe God. By the way, it's the same thing in the New Testament because Jesus is God. You've got to believe Jesus who is God, who's the Jewish Messiah. Anyway, I'm probably making too much of this point, but the reason I harp on that is that the Jews would have freaked out at what Jesus just said. Verses 11 and 12, those were fighting words for the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes. They would have just said, he just said Jews are gonna go to hell and that Gentiles are gonna sit with Jews before God, which we know is true. <laughs> All that's true. So be careful with this. Um, but be that as it may, verse 13 goes on. And, the, and Jesus said unto the centurion, go thy way and as thou hast believed, so it be done unto thee. And his servant was healed in the selfsame hour. Exactly the time Jesus said, go your way, your servant's healed. He gets home, 
oh, my servant is healed. When did he get healed? And they said, oh, it was like noon yesterday. It's like, that's exactly what Jesus, like, like this is a cool story uh, where it came exactly just like Jesus said it would happen. Um, so I love this. Uh, Jesus cares about this centurion, the Gentile centurion. The Jews would have hated this. Um, so you got a leper cleansed, uh, number one. You got the healing of centurion's servant. That's miracle number two. And that brings us to miracle number three. The healing of Peter's mother-in-law. Check it out. It says in verse 14, and when Jesus was come into Peter's house, he saw his wife's mother laid and sick of fever. Now, um, this, is, this, is, this is an interesting verse just in and of itself. Um, I think it's shocking. Peter was married. <laughs> Peter had a mother-in-law. Um, I would just say to our Catholic friends, uh, how in the world can the first Pope have a wife? Um, <laughs> by the way, um, again, one of the things I'm gonna ask, if you're from a Catholic background, and you're like, oh, the Pope and, and Holy, and you know, Jesus toast and all that stuff, be careful, just be careful. I would say this about the Catholics, I would say this about the Protestants. We have to be really careful who cares about Catholicism and Protestantism? We need to be about biblicalism. What does the Bible actually say? And there's been a lot of nonsense that has come from both the Catholics and the Protestants, just a heads up on that. Um, but one of the nonsensical things that's happened was celibacy uh, for the Pope and for the priests. By the way, when did that life of celibacy and poverty come from? The universal requirement in the Catholic Church for celibacy was imposed on the clergy with force in 1123 AD, um, and then again, and it stuck in 1139 AD. So the, the priests of the Catholic Church have been celibate for about a thousand years, almost a thousand years. And one thing that I would say about that is, um, it was a really bad idea. Um, well, Brett, it came out as a papal edict or whatever. It came down by this or that council or this or that. Well, a lot of those councils were wrong. One thing for sure, I can't defend church history. Church tradition should be, we should be careful letting church tradition and edicts of councils from a thousand years ago, we should be really careful about letting them rule what the church does. Um, I know this is gonna offend people, I don't mean to, but I just wanna be honest. I think one of the biggest problems with the Catholic Church with its abuse of children and sexual scandals all around the Catholic Church and the Protestant Church for that matter. Um, but with the Catholics, this whole thing of celibacy didn't help the problem at all. And, um, and I, I'm just gonna say it, you know, I, I worry that if a person is able to not be married, um, there's what we've seen, and this is just evident, there's, there's numbers and math to, to, to prove this, but you kinda have to watch out because could you be drawing men to be leaders in the church for the last thousand years that aren't really attracted to women? What, what does that do for the church? And I'm gonna say that's one of the problems with the Catholic church. Um, Peter had a mother-in-law. And that's something that Catholics should go, well, that's, that's, he was, if, if you think he was the first Pope. Um, I don't, by the way, because uh, we'll talk about that when we get to later on in Matthew, when, when, when the Catholics say, this is where the, Jesus 
made Peter the Pope. I'll show you how that was really a poor <laughs> interpretation of scripture. Well, who are you to say? It's not just me, it's centuries of scholars who have shown, yeah, that was, that was a bad interpretation. So just be careful with that one. But, but, you know, I can't defend church behavior. Even in the seven churches of Asia Minor in Revelation, you know, the five of seven churches, five of seven churches were off course, way off course by the time Jesus gave the revelation to John the apostle. And he had to correct churches because they were just wacko. They were doing stupid stuff. And that makes me realize, wow, how far are we off course? One of the things that um, the leadership at 8th grade constantly ask is, how can we be more biblical in the way we do gatherings, church, leadership, you know, the way we do church all together? We look at the scriptures because we don't wanna do some traditional thing. We've got everything we need right here in the Bible. And that's the goal. I'm not saying atheist perfect. I'm just saying um, some of the faults of church history is where they went with man's tradition, just like in Jesus' time with the Jews. It's the same problem. So the big question, what should the church look like? Are we being biblical is the question. Well, all that to say, this, this little story of Peter's house, um, by the way, he had a house too. Uh, he wasn't in poverty. Uh, so he's got a mother-in-law and he's got a house. And he's got a house in a town that was pretty, pretty nice. It was a nice little town. Um, so that's kind of interesting. Um, now, by the way, I wanna show you a video that we shot. Uh, got some drone footage and stuff, uh, but check this out. And I want you to see Capernaum because uh, this is one of my favorite type places to take Athey Creekers. And uh, on this day, I took them on a nice sunny day. Check this out. Okay, Eighth Creek, here we are at Capernaum, the city uh, where Jesus did many miracles. And uh, this here is the synagogue where Jesus went in and healed the man with the withered hand and did other things um, with the people of Capernaum. Capernaum is the town where Peter lived. Uh, it was this very uh, synagogue um, where you can see the foundation stones. These gray stones at the bottom are the very stones of the, of the time when Jesus would have been here. The light colored stones were brought in uh, later uh, where the, that was built up to be a bigger synagogue uh, after Jesus was here. But those stones there are the very foundation stones of the time when Jesus ministered here in this synagogue. Um, this town also includes a little village of where the people lived, homes and houses. And um, they also believe they, they know right where Peter's house was here in Capernaum. And uh, what they did is they built a church on that location and the church, they built it in a hexagonal kind of shape. Um, which was a, a sign of, of where churches would meet back in those first century times. Um, so all that to say, uh, it's Capernaum, an amazing town, beautiful spot. Uh, this is where I'd live if, if I were uh, you know, gonna live on the Sea of Galilee. So no, that's not the Millennium Falcon parked uh, in Senate. <laughs> in uh, <laughs> Capernaum, uh, but it is a, uh, you know, the Catholics, one of the things they do, kind of like, you know, in dog marks his territory, um, the Catholics do that all over the Holy Land. Um, and this is one example of that. I'm sorry if that offends you, but this is an atrocity. It's over Peter's house. You, can, you have to bend over and look under the spaceship to see 
barely be able to see what Peter's house, where it was in the town. Um, but all that to say, uh, they were kind of claiming that as this is Catholic, stay away, you know, kind of thing. And that's true pretty much all over most of the Holy Land. But, um, but all that to say, um, it's just a place, so I, I don't make too big a deal of that. But, but um, this is where Peter's house was. And the reason they know is because it later became a church and they made the early church made their churches in a hexagonal shape. And there's some interesting things about that. We'll get into that further later on in our Through the Bible study. But, but um, this is where Jesus, so he, he just preached the Sermon on the Mount up on the Mount of Beatitudes about a half a mile away up on a hill. He made his way down the hill and on the way he healed the leper. And once he got into Capernaum, he met the centurion and healed the centurion servant remotely, but he's still in Capernaum. And now he goes to Peter's house. Um, and that's where Peter's mother-in-law is now uh, sick. Um, and, he, um, and what does he do? Let's take a look, verse 15. And he touched her hand and the fever left her and she arose and ministered unto them. <laughs> Don't you love this? Short and sweet, tough to beat. Um, you know, just, just touched her hand. Um, there, you know, it's again, I love that Jesus wasn't afraid to touch. It's interesting, we live in a day today where um, the whole touching thing is so questionable. Um, that, you know, in ministry these days, we're like, man, whatever you do, don't touch people. And if you do, um, have a bunch of people around, pastors and the laying on of hand on just this little part of your shoulder, just because uh, don't be Joseph Biden Smith sniffing people's hair, uh, <laughs> like coming up creepily. Like, like there's a lot of weirdness in our culture now. So it's sort of taken away this whole thing of touching. Um, but, um, but, but, but I do love that Jesus wasn't afraid to touch the leper. And then he comes and touches this woman's hand and she is uh, instantly healed. And then the fever left her, I love that. And what does she do? Right out of a fever, she gets up and it says she ministered um, unto them. What does it mean? Did she start preaching a sermon? No, the word ministered is a great word. It's, it's a word that's very, fairly familiar um, in, in the New Testament, it's diakoneo. Um, which is where we get our word deacon, as it turns out. And by the way, in the book of the New Testaments, uh, Romans chapter 16 talks about the word in the feminine, deaconess. And um, the deacon is someone who is to be a servant, attendant, um, domestic, to serve, to wait upon. So the deacons were selected in Acts chapter six to help serve the tables of communion and minister, make sure that the people of the church were being cared for, loved on. And um, I love that. Um, we have official deacons in Athe Greek. We also have deaconesses that, um, that we're so thankful for, women who just serve. And we've got tons of women who do these amazing ministry works, uh, whether it's uh, making meals for sick people or helping out with um, children and, and children's ministry or, or our Titus II women who are counseling and sharing and teaching younger women um, and helping. You know, like there's so many great women in our church that I would put in this uh, uh, diakonos kind of uh, role. Um, but, but I love that. By the way, one of the things, some of the best people that are serving are the people that were most broken or most sick uh, before. Um, I've noticed that people that the Lord has saved from a horrible situation, oftentimes you'll find those people, the ones serving in the church uh, and doing it with great joy because of what the Lord has done for them. I think Peter's mother-in-law would have been this as well. So now let's back up a little bit. Um, we've got so far of the 10 miracles, we've done three. Uh, the healing of a leper or cleansing of a leper, a Gentile centurion and a woman uh, that's healed. Um, all three of these that we're talking about would be a problem for the Jews. 
Jesus is loving on, caring for, helping the people that they could care less about. The religious leaders couldn't care less about the woman's plight or the Gentile centurion or the leper that's stuck in a cave somewhere. And I love that Jesus is breaking through um, and Jesus is the one who heals the brokenhearted and the hurt. Um, you know, it's interesting because sometimes the Lord allows, uh, uh, you know, our, our brokenness and our sickness to be the very thing that draws us near to him. Um, and, um, and, you know, these people would have thought all of these, the, the woman, the centurion, the leper, they're all being punished by God. For the, that's why the centurion's servant was sick, because he's a centurion, of course. So he deserves to have his most beloved servant sick. That's the way they would have looked at it back then. But I love that Jesus doesn't say, yeah, you deserve what you're getting. I'm punishing you with leprosy, or I'm punishing this woman because she's a woman. That's the way they looked at it in those days. But Jesus took all of that down, which sort of raises an interesting question. When you and I look at our sin and um, we think, is God punishing me? Um, here's a question for you. Is, does God punish you for your sins? The answer is no, if you're a Christian. Now, if you're not a Christian, you will be punished for your sins. But in, in some ways, it's not even really, I would even put that on God. It's like God says, well, when, you're, when you sin, you're choosing a direction. And when you choose to be a sinner and reject the cross of Jesus, then you're gonna put yourself in a place of punishment. You're the one who sends yourself to hell. And so, yeah, there is punishment for sin in hell. The wages of sin is death. But that same scripture is the same reason why if you're a Christian and you feel like, I think God's punishing me. Nope, because uh, you're still breathing. If you're still alive and breathing, you have not been punished for your sins. Well, Brett, it was just a little lie that I told. Doesn't matter. The wages of that little white lie, death. So is God punishing you? No, no. Now, there are things the Lord will do, um, not punitive punish, but to correct your path. God will allow repercussions to happen in your life. There's a difference between repercussions and punishment. Um, and that's kind of what we need to remember. Um, and, and so that's what people thought in that time. If you had a disease or sickness, it must've been somebody sinned. In fact, you remember John chapter nine, verses one through three, as Jesus passed by the man, um, he saw a man which was blind from his birth, which they, they had the big question, okay, who sinned? That, that would have been the first question they would have asked in those days. So he's blind from his birth and the disciples asked him saying, master, who did sin, this man or his parents that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, neither hath this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. The reason this guy's blind is God's gonna manifest himself through this blind guy. There's gonna be something where this blind guy has a job to do, whether it was um, uh, you know, to show people Jesus or to show that Jesus can heal or whatever it is, it was not punishment. And Jesus corrected that with this little notion here. So on this idea of the 10 miracles so far, the miracles that we've seen so far are ones that they would have rejected. And, um, and, and, and it was contrary to what the Pharisees were teaching about God and his nature. Um, they had their own bias, their own bigotry really. They had their own um, worldview that was just off. And it, it, it just gives me pause. Lord, what is our bias? What is our bigotry against certain people and places and things and stuff that you actually care about and love? And maybe we've just chalked them off as loser sinners. But the Lord would say, yeah, but I love them and I still have a plan for them. 
Um, and then, you know, the scripture we read a few weeks ago, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and cast out devils? And the Lord would say, depart from me, I never even knew you. So it, it just makes you just uneasy enough to say, oh Lord, make me in line with your worldview. Um, a lot of times we find ourselves praying, Lord, do this and do that. And we're trying to get the Lord to line up with our worldview. Um, our prayers should be, Lord, help me to line up with your worldview. And just to remember that, um, that you know, we're all doomed sinners, we're all lepers. Uh, Romans 3.23 reminds us, you know, all have sinned and, and come short of the glory of God. Um, you might say, well, then let's just keep sinning. If, if we've all sinned, let's just keep sinning since we're all sinners. Well, that's what Paul said in Romans 6, 1 and 2. What shall we say then? <clears throat> shall we continue in sin that grace abound? God forbid. Well, just a couple more verses and then we'll pack it up for the evening. Uh, verse 16. It says, when evening was come, um, it says um, that uh, when evening was come, they brought unto many that were possessed with devils and he cast out the spirits with his word and healed all that were sick. That it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah, the prophet saying himself took our infirmities and bear our sickness. Man, I love this. Um, this is where we'll kind of stop tonight because there's too many good stuff here. We don't want to just race through some of these, these next miracles. But let's just think about this, these last two verses for a second. First of all, um, he, he's, he's now, he's going to do bunches of miracles. We're only getting the 10 descriptions. But verse 16 says he's already casting out devils. And with his word, it says there, he's uh, healing all that were sick. It goes back to verse 8. Remember the centurion in verse eight when he said, but speak the word only and my servant shall be healed. The centurion know that his word was powerful. And here at his word, all these demon possessed and people that were sick were healed. Man, it's the power of the word. And I love that about our Lord. But, but notice all of these things were fulfilling the prophet Isaiah. And you'll notice in your margin, Isaiah 53, four, where it says that he uh, took on, our, on himself our infirmities, that's all of our sicknesses, and bear, and bear our sicknesses. It's what Jesus would do. Um, interesting, how did Jesus bear? You know, you, you, you see him walking around bearing, you know, the iniquities. Um, but as it turns out, he, he does, he, it, it sounds almost so easy, you know, as, as a, you know, like Hebrews 4, for the word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. You see, Jesus is speaking the word and, and it's happening. So you're like, oh, that was easy for Jesus. But I think we have to remember what made it possible, if you would, um, for Jesus um, to, to speak it into existence. Um, and, and by the way, uh, be careful on this one. Some of our um, name it and claim it, blab it and grab it people, you know who I'm talking about? The squeal it and steal it. Um, uh, that's uh, you know, the you know, evangelical uh, you know, prosperity teachers of the 80s, you know, that said, just to speak the word and you can command it into existence. Well, that's dumb. Um, we, again, we're not Jesus and we're definitely not God. Um, so what do we do about that? Well, it's true, Proverbs does say, death and life are in the power of the tongue they, uh, and they that love it shall eat the fruit thereof. So there is power in the tongue, but you have to remember we, when we speak, we have to speak, number one, humbly submitted to the will of God Number two, trusting that he's the power behind that, not us. So you better make sure that the word you're speaking is in line with his word because it's his 
word that's really powerful. And then um, to, to also say like Jesus, not my will, but thy will be done. So that's one of the problems with the prosperity teachers. Just name it and claim it. Believe God for that new Cadillac or that new house or that new car or whatever. And that was just dumb. That was just people being wacko. But how did Jesus, it was it just that easy? He spoke the word? No, he himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. Um, all of this healing and stuff is possible because of the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus took a book. There was a story that was written. It was kind of an allegory that I thought was very insightful that illustrates this idea of Jesus who he himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. It's a story I'd like to conclude with tonight. It's called Ragman by Walter Wangren Jr. It goes like this, young man, handsome and strong, he was pulling an old cart filled with clothes. Rags, really. Rags, he called out. Rags, new rags for old. I'll take your old tired rags. The man stood, was six foot four. His eyes flashed with intelligence. He could, could, could he find no better job than being a rag man? I followed him. My curiosity drove me. He was a handsome, good looking, strong, six foot four man. So I followed him and I wasn't disappointed. There was a woman sobbing in a handkerchief sitting on a stair step. Give me your rag, he said so gently to her, and I'll give you another. And he laid across her palm a linen cloth so clean and new that it shined bright with whiteness. He began to weep. He began to weep. And she, her tears turned into joy. This is a wonder, I breathed to myself as I followed the sobbing ragman like a child who can't turn away from a mystery. Rags, rags, new rags for old. A little girl with a head wrapped in a bandage with blood soaking through the bandages. Give me a rag, he said, tracing his own line uh, on, his, on her cheek, and I'll give you mine. And with the bandage, as he took it from her head, went the wound against his brow, it ran a darker, more substantial blood, his own blood. Rags, as he went on, rags, I take old rags, cried the sobbing, bleeding, strong, intelligent ragman. Are you going to work? Do you have a job? Are you crazy, the man sneered. And he showed that his coat had no arm. He was a one-armed man. Give me your jacket and I'll give you mine. Such quiet authority in his voice, the ragman's arm stayed in its sleeve. And after that, he gave it over. He was now walking as a one-armed man. Then he's found a drunk. And now I had to run to keep up with the ragman. Though he was weeping uncontrollably and bleeding freely at the forehead and pulling his cart with one arm, stumbling for drunkenness, falling again and again, exhausted, old and sick. Yet he went with terrible speed. On spider's legs, he skittered through the alleys of the city this mile and the next until he came to its limits and he rushed beyond. And now, after helping all the people in the town, the little old ragman came to a landfill. He came to the garbage pits. And when I wanted to help him in what he did, I, I wanted to, but I, I hung back hiding. He climbed up a hill with tormented labor and cleared a little space on the hill and then sighed and laid down. He pillowed his head on a handkerchief and a jacket. He covered his bones with an army blanket and he died. 
Oh, how I cried to witness that death. I had come to love the ragman. I did not know how, how could I know that I slept through Friday night and Saturday and, and it's night too. But then on Sunday morning, well, then I lowered my head and trembling for all that I had seen, I, my, I myself waked up to the ragman. I told him my name with shame for I was a sorry figure next to him. And then I took all, off my clothes in that place and said to him with dear yearning in my voice, dress me, Lord. And he dressed me. My Lord, he put new rags on me and now I too follow him, the ragman, the Christ. That's what the scripture is saying. He bore himself our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. Lord, how thankful we are tonight. As we conclude this study, we're reminded of what you did for us, taking our infirmities all of our sicknesses and wounds and all of our sins and you bore them on the cross. And you were wounded beyond recognition, despised and rejected on our behalf. So how thankful are we as we see these people being healed left and right here in Capernaum. Lord, help us not just to take that powerful word for granted, but we, we realize that you paid our price and you did the work so that we might be healed and blessed. We applaud you, we're impressed by you, Lord not by the healings themselves, but what, what you've done to save the world from its sin, to save us from all of our sicknesses and wounds and infirmities. Lord, as we read the gospel here in the book of Matthew, Lord, I pray that we'd have a new sensitivity to what your son Jesus did for us. May we be rejoicing together. And we thank you, Lord, for being the one who took our sins in Jesus' name, amen.